0: Recently, Ann and I were currently in the market to find a bath installer. So we're looking to remodel our bath. It's pretty outdated, as some of you know if you've been over. And we had someone come over, and I was talking with the, uh, the guy doing the estimate, doing the measurements and all that stuff. And we started, of course, talking about religion, um, as one does when they're measuring and installing your bathroom. <laughs> And I had one of those gentle and lowly books uh, sitting on my shelf, and I'm like, I don't need this. Uh, I can pick up another copy. So I, I handed it to him. I said, hey, this is a pretty pretty uh, popular book right now. It'd be great if you, you're your reader. So we're talking, and I share it with him, and he's, he's interested. And so we talk, and he kind of reflects some ideas about, you know, pretty popular sentiments today about all religions are essentially the same, and... At the, at the core root of religion is various religions is to essentially have a relationship with God, which is, a, is a, the, the latter part of that, of course, is true, that religions are aiming to have a personal personal relationship with God. They go about that different ways. All religions are based off of the assumption that there is some sort of problem that we face, some sort of human predicament, and the religious... Um, Contours are the way of resolving that predicament, either whether that's an impersonal God, like in Eastern religions, we need to kind of get rid of desire or sort of become one with the universe so that we don't have these conflicting desires, or whether that's other uh, religions where it is some way of achieving our relationship with God through our works or through different pillars of the religion or institutions or sacraments or what have you. But all of us, even as my bathtub fitter was reflecting, whether even if we're suppressing it, we have this desire to have a relationship with God. We were created in his image. We were meant, our hearts are restless, as Augustine said, until we find our rest in God. And religions are these sort of various religions, non-Christian religions would be sinful, rebellious, idolatrous expressions of nonetheless that God-given human nature that we have to seek after God, even if we do it in ways that are going away from God. The Bible also addresses this longing that we have, and yet it tells of the true story of God, not us reestablishing a relationship with us. And one of the major pictures or institutions that tell this story is the story of the tabernacle, of God coming down and carving out a place to dwell among a sinful humanity by means of sacrifice and atonement. In today's passage, as we're going through John 1, looking at different themes for Advent, today we'll look at the, the, the message that we see in verse 14, specifically that the incarnate Jesus, God become a human, human being, taking on human nature, incarnation, the incarnate Jesus is God's tabernacling. The incarnate Jesus is God's tabernacling among us. Look at verse 14 with me. And the word became flesh, became a lowly human being. God the Son became a being and human being and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace. And truth. Now, most translations like the ESV that I'm reading, many of you have, translate verse 14 something like him dwelling among us. He dwelt among us. Other translations say things like he took up residence among us. He made his dwelling among us. He made his home among us. He lived among us. Now, this word dwelt, as it's translated in the ESV, literally means something like it's a, it's a word picture that means something like to pitch one's tent it is a it is a tenting word to tent among us interesting right now this is also the word used in the greek translation of the old testament the old testament originally written in hebrew but translated into greek so similar to the New Testament written in Greek, it's, it, it's a cognate, that means it's a related word, it's the verb form of a noun from the Greek translation of the Old Testament for this word tabernacle. In other words, I would argue, based, on a, based off of how John uses his language and his, his, his uh, vocabulary elsewhere, that John would seem to be arguing here That he's claiming, he's designating the word becoming flesh as Jesus actually tabernacling among us. Jesus is the tabernacle of God when he becomes a human among humanity. And this makes sense because I've shared the structure, how we sort of structured this passage in our, our online announcements Um, You can see the diagram how the beginning of the section really focuses on creation themes. You have in the beginning, alluding to Genesis, the word, all things being made through the word as God spoke things into existence. There's light, there's life, there's all things being made through him. And in the second half, verses 11 and following, you have a lot of Exodus themes, right? The law comes through Moses, Moses, the Exodus leader, grace and truth comes through Christ. And so I would argue, and what, I, what, our, what we're going to look at today is this theme of the incarnation, Jesus, the person of Christ, as God's tabernacling among us. And what I want us to do is we're going to look at the whole Bible. We're going to look at a, an overview of the Bible story when it comes to this theme of tabernacle. The reason I want to do this is I want us to feel the richness, the depth, the texture of what it means for God to make this claim about his son and what it meant for him to become a human for us, that he is our tabernacle. So we start, of course, in the garden where all stories, all true stories begin. And the garden, many scholars, and I would agree with them, would argue that the Garden of Eden is actually depicted as the very first temple. In fact, the later tabernacle and temple, they're they're decorated and they're furnished in such a way that is meant to be stylized like the Garden of Eden, as if the tabernacle and temple, it's a way of them trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. This is now where we can have God's presence among us, just like we had it in the Garden of Eden. A lot of the furniture in the tabernacle and temple looks like the Garden of Eden. Additionally, The language in Genesis 3.8 of God walking among them. Why? We see that God's presence was literally among them in the Garden of Eden. He's walking among them. And that language, that word for walked, is language that is later used in the Bible for God's presence in the tabernacle. Maybe even more convincing in Genesis 2.15 when God tells Adam that he is to be appointed to cultivate and to keep the garden. These two words when used together when they're used together as a pair cultivating keep quite frequently are used of the priests activity in the temple to serve the, ta- the serve in the in the temple and to guard the temple of impurities and so many scholars and I would agree would argue that Adam and Eve are priest kings In the first temple, they are appointed to have dominion. They're the kings over God's creation, and they're also his priests over his temple. Genesis depicts the Garden of Eden as the very first temple. And that is what the whole rest of the story is now pointing forward, is to say, how do we get back to that situation where God dwelt among his people without any hindrance? So then we get to the tabernacle itself. And this, of course, follows the Exodus, when God redeems his people out of slavery in Egypt. He confirms his covenant with them in chapter 24 of Exodus. And then we get to chapter 25, where we now get the instructions, the beginning of the instructions for the construction of this tabernacle, this tent. Verse Chapter 25, verse 8. Again, if you want to try flipping with me to these uh, passages, totally fine. If you want to jot them down, look at them later, or just listen, totally fine. It says, and, and, and let them make me a sanctuary, that is this referring to the tabernacle, okay? And then it says the purpose, that, so that. Here's why you should make this tabernacle, that I may dwell in their midst. The purpose of the tabernacle was so that God could dwell among his people. And the tabernacle, you'll know, we might be more familiar with the temple. The tabernacle was sort of this mobile dwelling of God among his people. It traveled with them in the wilderness, and then eventually it became more stationary once they reached the promised land. Eventually after that, it would be superseded and replaced by the temple, a more permanent structure but we see also that, that this is part of the blessings of the covenant. God redeems them out of Israel and part of the what it means then to become God's people and to be covenanted in that relationship with God is to have his dwelling among them and this is achieved through the tabernacle. Leviticus 26, 11 through 12, a chapter that details all the blessings of the covenant. It says, I will make my dwelling, literally tabern- pa- tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk, there's that language of walk, I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. One of the ways that God would have them as his people and be their God, a language that we'll eventually see later, so just set that aside and remember that, okay, is that he will tabernacle among them. And the way that this tabernacling, this dwelling is achieved, pivotal to this is you have to understand the sacrificial system. You see, a holy God cannot dwell among a sinfully unclean people without acting out and destroying that uncleanliness. So through the institution of the tabernacle and the temple, we get these animal sacrifices that are bound up with it. And by offering, by by God instituting these animal sacrifices, God is then providing a way for them to deal with the uncleanness of sin, and one of the ways that you might think about uncleanness, it's a, it's a sort of a religious term, it doesn't necessarily, some of it is symbolic. God is creating sort of a symbolic universe for them to understand how sin is unclean, and, it, and it's contrary to holiness. Okay? But one of the ways you might think about this idea of uncleanness in the Old Testament is this idea of pollution. It's depicting sin as almost a pollutant, something that is polluting space, God is not able to dwell in an area where sin creates this pollution. And so what the sacrifices do, you get this language of purification with the sacrifices. God is, in other words, carving out a space by the the use of the sacrifices and and the priests offering the sacrificial blood. They're actually applying it to the tabernacle and temple itself. They're purifying the tabernacle and temple so that God can dwell there then among his people. Let's offer these purifying, atoning sacrifices onto the tabernacle and temple itself, like onto the altar and such, so that God can then dwell here among us. The Day of Atonement as just one example of this, and there's a a variety of uses for the sacrifices, so this is kind of simplistic. There's a lot of different sacrifices that had different functions, but this is at least one of their major functions. On the Day of of the Atonement, when they would kill the goat one of the goats, the goat sacrifice, they would bring the blood inside the veil and and, and they would take the blood, the blood of the bull, and they would sprinkle it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat, applying it and cleansing that area, purifying it for God's presence to dwell. Verse 16 of Leviticus chapter 16, thus he, the priest, shall make atonement for the holy place. Why? Notice this. Because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And because of their transgressions and all their sins. you got to make atonement because you got to carve out a space so that God can actually dwell among a sinful people. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, that is the tabernacle, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. You see the, how the sacrifices is played against their uncleanness? They're unclean. God is carving out a space by these sacrifices so that he can nonetheless have that relationship with, with him. Sound familiar? Okay, I think about it uh, almost like we're in a pandemic, right? And so people need PPE and they need these things to kind of be able to to navigate in the midst of a virus or the uncleanness, right? Or I think of Chernobyl. This is before my time, so I'm dating myself here. But Chernobyl, 1986 in Ukraine under Soviet communism, uh, a radiation plant or something along those lines, a reactor exploded. And now there's radiation all over the place and it's contaminating the whole thing. You can look up uh, documentaries of all the cleanup they're trying to do to clean up the radiation. Why? Because human beings can't live amongst the radiation. Otherwise, they grow deformities and it's, it's just not good for us, right? So many people die from that. Likewise, sin is like this radiation that God cannot dwell among without acting out in judgment against it. He is too holy To put up with evil without atonement being made for it. And we see this even in the Passover, right? The very exodus that leads to the people being made God's covenant people. Being given the law at Sinai, being a covenant made with them. All of that is predicated on the fact that they're not just rescued out of Egypt. But they themselves are atoned for in Egypt. In the Passover sacrifice. In other words, you don't get covenant with God, you don't get relationship with God, you don't get the kingdom except through sacrifice. And the sacrifice of the Passover, in many ways, gets reflected then in the continual institution of sacrifices in the tabernacle and temple. Atonement is always needed for God to restore his presence with the sinful people. Eventually, we see that the tabernacle gives way to the more permanent temple replacement and so we see this thing that uh, sometimes scholars call the Shekinah glory. This is God's way of manifesting his presence. Of course, God is, um, is, is, is everywhere. He, he, he exists in all space. And yet God, as saying, this is where I'm dwelling among you, he would manifest that presence in a cloud. And so we see, for example, in the tabernacle, Exodus 40, 34 through 38, says that the cloud covered the tent of meeting. This is right after they finished constructing it at the very end of the book of Exodus. That cloud then covers the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. Or later then when they dedicate the temple and they bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, when the priests then come out of the Holy Holy of Holies, the holy place, sorry, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. That's 1 Kings 8, 10 through 11. So the tabernacle and temple were places where God would manifest his presence through a cloud. And this was the display. Okay, again, notice this. This is going to come up later. This was the display of God's glory among his people. And nonetheless, even when the, te- the temple was constructed, a more permanent building, That anticipates something more. This cannot be the end. The God who dwelt perfectly, uninhibitedly with his people in the Garden of Eden, will he be confined to a temple? Will he be confined to continual offering of animal sacrifices in order to dwell among his people? Can this really be the end? A mindful Israelite would notice that this can't be the end. This must be anticipatory. Even in Solomon's dedication prayer, he says, But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, God. How much less this house, this temple that I have built. And so eventually when the people of Israel, specifically the southern kingdom of Judah, is destroyed and they're taken into exile, one of the things that is destroyed is the temple itself. And let that not miss, let's not miss how devastating that would have been. The temple was what they looked to as saying, we're God's people. He dwells among us. This is, what, this, this, is the whole, this is our identity. And the temple is destroyed. This is how we relate to God. This is how he is with us. Even Moses said, God, don't, don't even take us to the promised land if you're not going to dwell with us. And yet in the exile, it's destroyed. Now God, of course, goes in Ezekiel. We see that God even goes with the exiles. But nonetheless, that is a, that is a significant moment. And so then as the Jewish people are are anticipating restoration, when God says, I'm going to bring about a new exodus, I'm going to bring you back out of slavery again, I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to atone for your sins definitively, one of the key parts of those promises of restoration in the prophets is that God is going to make a new temple. We get this apocalyptic, kind of like Revelation, apocalyptic, highly symbolic vision in Ezekiel 40 to the end, where Ezekiel depicts this grand temple that God is going to bring about, where he will dwell with his people once again. And so there's, there's anticipation in Haggai 2:9, it says that the latter glory of this house, this new temple house, shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. It's only gonna get better. And yet in Ezra 3, Ezra 3:10 3, through 12, when they finally do return from Babylon and they As you remember in Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuild the temple and the walls. The old men, it says in verse 12, who had seen the first house, they had seen the first temple, they wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid. They wept because they saw that it was not surpassing in glory from the first temple. And many scholars would note that there's, there's never mentioned for the second temple that's built, there's never mentioned that the Shekinah glory ever returns. So it leaves the question open. Well now finally, we're still waiting then for that ultimate restoration to come, for that true temple to come. The final thing that brings us back to Eden, we come now to John 1.14, in which John tells us that the Word became flesh and God tabernacled among us. That in the incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas, God becoming a human being. In the incarnation, God's presence took up residence among us, not in the form of a tent or a building, a temple, but now as a person, Jesus Christ, God himself coming to dwell among us. In fact, Jesus, I would argue, is the more literal tabernacle and temple than the tabernacle and temple ever were. Those things were mere shadows of the reality that was to come, which is Christ himself. And so we see not only in John 1, but also in John 2, Jesus will say to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it. Why? Verse 21. Because he was speaking about the temple of his body, John says. Jesus is the tabernacle and temple. And so we continue. Look at chapter 1, verse 14 with me. Not only does it say that the word became flesh and he tabernacled among us, but remember that whole thing about the Shekinah glory, where in the tabernacle and temple we see the glory of God. Look at verse 14, the rest of verse 14 with me. It says, not only has he tabernacled among us, but we have seen his glory. Glory as the only begotten son from the father. The very glory of God as the very son having the very same nature as the father. God himself, we see the glory of God in Christ. As God manifested his Shekinah glory in the tabernacle and temple, so now in Jesus we have seen his glory, the very true tabernacle. And as many of you know, The the New Testament will go on to explain the church as the very temple of God. Because after Christ's ascension, when he goes to heaven, what does he do? He pours out his spirit. And by his spirit, he unites us to himself. And he causes his very presence to dwell with us at all times. And so Christ is extending his temple presence into the church itself as the people who experience and have this holy spirit dwelling on within us we abide with christ we have christ's presence with us we are united to him and so, so now that temple presence has extended into the church and as those people indwelt by the spirit we the church are now god's literal temple this is not this is not metaphor some people would argue that the church being the temple is just sort of a, a figure of speech. No, this is, we are literally the temple more than the, the physical temple building ever was. Because we experience and we receive Christ's presence among us at all times through the Spirit. And so Ephesians 2, at the end, it will say that we are being built together into a dwelling place, into God's holy temple by the Spirit, Through Christ, we now, all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, have access in one spirit to the Father, Paul says. A little bit in the background here, we should know that in AD 70, if you're not familiar in AD 70, Rome came and they sacked Jerusalem. They destroyed Jerusalem. And in so doing, in AD 70, they destroyed the physical temple. And this, Jesus anticipates in what's called the Olivet Discourse. Mark 13 and the other synoptic gospels talk about this. And this would have been a clear, the, the early Christians would have seen this as a clear statement from God that that old temple system is now over with. It is now over with in the coming of Christ. God's judgment has fallen on a rebellious people. And now the true temple is Jesus and his church. And of course, finally, we come to the, the end of all things. The new creation, right? As we've been going, we went through the book of Revelation just before this. Do you remember in Revelation 21 and 22 how it depicts the new creation when Jesus comes again and he makes all things new? It depicts the entire creation now as God's temple. We've reached Eden again, but Eden 2.0, even better Not just the garden, but the whole creation is the garden of Eden. The whole creation is the new Jerusalem. The whole creation is the temple of God. You'll remember as John goes through the book of Revelation, one of the key phrases that structures the book is that John is experiencing a vision. And so he says, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw. And he talks about all the things that he sees, right? It's a visionary book. But when you come to Revelation 21, John says something that he didn't see. That should catch our attention. And what did john not see verse 22 of chapter 21 and i saw no temple in the city for its temple is the lord god the almighty and the lamb you don't need a building now because we have god and the lamb himself dwelling literally among us or in verse 16 it talks about the dimensions of this new jerusalem being it lies four-square, it says, its length the same as its width. In other words, it's cubed. And I think, as Dan probably mentioned in his sermon on this passage, that the, one of the other places where we get uh, this idea of cubed dimensions is the Holy of Holies. In other words, the entire new creation will be the holy of holies, where God is dwelling among His people. You get a summary of this in Revelation 21:3 that opens up uh, part of this section. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold... This is the same language we saw in Leviticus 26 of the covenant promises. Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. Remember how Leviticus talks about the way that God is our God and we are his people is by his dwelling among us, by the fact that we experience his blessing through his presence and now in the new creation that will come to full fruition. And so believer, this is what we're talking about when in John, he gives us that that little phrase there that the incarnate Jesus is God's tabernacling. The word has become flesh and he has tabernacled among us. And in Jesus, God in flesh, we have seen the glory of God, the glory as the only begotten son from the father. Jesus is where God's presence is found and where God's glory is seen. The incarnation is the end to which the tabernacle always pointed. It's the completion of God's tabernacling program, his templing project to dwell again among a sinful people. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's Old Testament interventions to reestablish his dwelling among a sinful people. He has achieved it. He has achieved that relationship with us, not we achieving that relationship with him. And the way, of course, that he's done that is that the fact that that Jesus is not merely the tabernacle and not merely the temple, but as we know, for example, in the book of Hebrews and elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus is also the priest. He's He's the temple, but he's also the priest that offers the sacrifices in the temple. And not only is he the temple and the priest, but he's the sacrifice. He's the priest and the one offering the sacrifice, and he is the sacrifice itself. As Hebrews talks about, it says that he is the purification for sins. He's the one who undoes, undoes the pollution of our sins. The one who cleanses our uncleanness before God. In Jesus, we once again can have communion with God as we were always intended from the Garden of Eden. That through the sacrifice of himself, the pollution of sin is definitively dealt with. So we have eternal, unshakable peace with a holy God a God who cannot stand any ounce of unholiness who will if not dealt with act upon it in judgment and yet we have peace with that God because Christ has paid for our sins and he's cleansed our impurification and we see this at Christ's death remember when Christ died that in Mark 15 38 One of the things that happened at Christ's death is that that really thick veil in the temple was torn, showing that there is a decisive end to that old temple system. That is not the way we approach God any longer. The pathway to God has now been achieved through Jesus' death. His death is the sacrifice once and for all. And so, as we sit then under just the glory of this reality... Believer, this this reality tells you that God loves you so incredibly much that He deliberately chose to take on lowly human nature and for all eternity. Why? All for the sake of rescuing you. For the sake of saving, fill in the blank with your name. That God loves you so much that he deliberately chose to take on lowly human form for the sake of rescuing Jennifer, for the sake of rescuing Peter, for the sake of rescuing Siobhan, Nick, Danica, for you personally. God became a human being for Kyle, for the Radomskys, for Tariel, for myself. This is the message that we get to sit in during Advent, and not only true of you personally, but then all your fellow members, that's God's love for them, the ones that you've locked arms with in the church. This is absolutely mind-blowing stuff. Like, I don't know any bigger application than to just sit in amazement of this. This is mind-blowing stuff, you guys. This is loyalty-shaping, affection-capturing, life-transforming stuff right here to respond to God in gratitude, in lives of gratitude. And to recall as well that this is all of God's initiative, not ours. As we began talking about the various religions and there essentially are all other religions are our way of trying to contrive some way to have peace with ultimate reality or to kind of work ourselves back into a relationship with God. And God's God's message across the tabernacling and across the templing of the Old Testament is to say that you can't do it. I have to institute a way to dwell among you. And even after God gives them the tabernacle, what do they do? After he gives them the Ten Commandments, I mean, what does he do? They go and they make a calf, a golden calf, and they break the Ten Commandments immediately. We can't do this. It's only by God's grace. It's only when God reveals himself to Moses and he says, I am a gracious and loving God, full of compassion, of steadfast love, giving to ten thousands god must make a way we have not worked ourselves in our way up to god we have not made a staircase to heaven so to say but god has come down to us in the person of christ and he has made the path to god he is the way the truth and the life the disciples said show us the way to the father and he says if you've known me if you believe in me you know the way to the father we cannot earn our path to god religion, good works, what have you. Anything that you do cannot earn your path to God. The very sacrifice of Christ, the fact that God sent his son to die for our sins is the biggest testimony that you can't save yourself because Christ had to do it. You know, sometimes we think about when folks are trying to buy a house or they're moving, um, we think about different parts of the city um my brother-in-law's car was just stolen actually and he lives uh on thanksgiving day of all days right he has one of those kias that's really easy to steal okay and he didn't know that he had to get that fixed so his car got stolen and so we're talking about him and he's thinking i don't think i'd ever want to buy a house in our neighborhood um he lives really close to us and it's like yeah the crime rate's not the best here um and so sometimes we think about that you know like we don't want to live in certain areas sometimes there's some negative mindsets with that but whatever you got the you got there's that sense of like wanting to live in maybe a nicer area. And we're talking about other human beings at that point. We're talking about neighborhoods. We're talking about places where maybe the businesses aren't so nice, whatever. In the incarnation, though, we're talking about the, the, the God of the universe who is incredibly holy, coming and dwelling among a sinful people. God is not only dwelling among humans. He's dwelling among humans like us. He lives among our kind in the person of Christ. And if you're here today and you're not yet a believer in Christ, if you have not yet clung to him for your very hope in life and death, we would plead for you to do that this morning, to repent, to turn from your sin, to turn from your disbelief in Christ, and turn to trusting in Christ. If you're you're like my bath fitter who is searching for some way, to have a relationship with God, let me tell you that Jesus is that way. God has spoken in Christ and he's told us this is the only place you're going to meet God. There is no other name given from heaven among men by which we must be saved, as Acts 4 says. Your sin is a pollution that bars you from a pure God. God is so pure that he cannot dwell among the dirtiness of our sin without acting out in judgment against it. But Christ is, purifies the sins of all those who trust in him and we have peace with him and finally believer as we just revel in how awesome this is i want this passage as well to propel us in our mission to share this message with others thinking about temple micah chapter 4 verse 12 one of the old testament prophets one of the minor prophets This is one passage among many that talks about, it anticipates the day when the nations will also be saved. And one of the ways it depicts that then, understandably, is that the nations will come and they'll gather at the temple, right? They too will have a relationship with God. How will they do that? By gathering at the temple, of course. It talks about the very house of God, the mountain Zion, that is, Jerusalem, being being lifted up with the house of the Lord. And the peoples, the nations, will flow to it. Verse 2, And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to Jerusalem, to Zion, that is, to the house of God, to the temple of Jacob. Well, now the nations are, in fact, coming to the temple, are they not? Because the nations are coming to Jesus. Jesus is the temple that the nations come to. He is where sinful humanity meets God and is reconciled to him. And no longer is it now, hey, bring the nations to a physical temple building. But now God's temple has been extended into the church. The Spirit's present, and the church, the temple, goes to the nations. That's how Micah is fulfilled. Not the nations coming to a literal building, but now the temple actually going to the nations themselves. A scholar, G.K. Beale, wrote a, a big, a really big, big old book on the presence of God across the Bible. This is kind of like a snippet form of that. And it's interesting the title he chose as he's writing a book on the theme of god's presence across the bible listen to the title he chose for his book this is a biblical theology on temple the temple and the church's mission would you normally link those two together the temple and the church's mission he is why because he's playing on this very theology that the temple has now gone into the church. We actually experience God's presence, the reconciling presence of God, and we get to go extend that temple to the nations. We get to see other people come in through the sacrifice of Christ and experience God's very presence by his spirit. And as those indwelt by his spirit, we get to go share that message with others. When Jesus was talking to the woman in Samaria in John 4, she, she figured out that Jesus was a prophet when he had some insight into her marital situation. And he says, she says, hey, let me ask you a question since you're a prophet. You know, are you going to live, are, are, are people, our fathers, they worshiped on this mountain. The Samaritans had their own sort of worship center. But you, the Jewish people, say that we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem. Say so there's a dispute about where you worship. Is it in the temple in Jerusalem or is it sort of the counterfeit one that the Samaritans created? This was a dispute between the Jews and Gentiles. And what does Jesus say? He says, "'Woman, believe me, the hour is coming "'when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem "'will you worship the Father.'" but the hour is coming and is now already here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, that the worship of God is no longer bound to a temple building in Jerusalem, but is extended to the nations. It's extended to the Samaritan woman. It's extended to your neighbor. It's extended to your coworker. It's extended to us. It's extended to all those who call on the name of the Lord to be saved. And so let us celebrate that this morning as we practice the Lord's Supper every week. As we do and I would call to mind just it can sometimes be missed on us but as we talk about the Lord's Supper what is one of the things that we say reciting Jesus's words this is my body this is my blood that's remarkable that assumes that the God of the universe has a body and has blood The Lord's Supper is a Christmas celebration every single time we partake of it. We're remembering, not only are we we celebrating his death for us, but what of course is the prerequisite that Jesus would even be able to die for us is that he became a human being for us so that we can be united to him and saved through his death. He is that ultimate sacrifice as he held up this meal that celebrated the Passover and the redemption from God's wrath in Egypt. He said, I am the ultimate Passover. I am the one, if you find refuge in me, in the blood over my doorpost, if you enter into me, God's wrath will pass over you. And so that's what we celebrate this morning. We celebrate a pictured promise, a pledge, and a seal of God's salvation offered to all those who trust in Christ that by believing and taking this symbol, we are actually communing with Christ and all of his saving benefits for us.